Well, this morning, even if you were to ask the most aggressive skeptics of the Bible and of the existence of God, if you were if you were to ask them, did a man named Jesus Christ exist or Jesus of Nazareth, they would they would have to say yes. They most of them would acknowledge, the vast majority would at least acknowledge that there was a man who existed in first century Palestine named Jesus of Nazareth. They would have to acknowledge, historically speaking, that he taught a group of followers and that he died under Pontius Pilate around 33, 37 AD, sometime in there. I mean, those are facts. Those are historical facts that nearly everyone agrees to. I mean, to deny the existence of George Washington would be crazy. And in similar ways, to deny that a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived in the first century would be crazy, historically speaking. But there are disagreements, as you well know, about this man named Jesus of Nazareth. And there are a couple of questions that begin to bring up some of those disagreements regarding him as a historical figure. I mean, the fact that a man lived, virtually no one denies. But when you start to say, who was this man? That's where the disagreements start to come in. Was he a prophet, a Jewish prophet? Was he a political revolutionary? Was he a good philosopher that ran up against the religious leaders of his day? Who was Jesus of Nazareth? The second question gets even more to the heart of the issue and is pretty significant. Why did he die? There's no dispute that he died under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified and put to death under Pilate. But why? Why did he die? Was it because of his political views? Was it because he ran into the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the day and they didn't like what he was teaching and so they put him to death? Why did he die? And how you personally answer that second question will obviously shape your life and shape your eternity. Now, up to this point in Mark Chapters 8, 9, and 10, in our section on discipleship, we've seen Jesus tell the disciples that he is going to die. We've seen that a couple of times. He's going to be killed. But if you look back over this section, we really haven't seen him explain why he's going to die yet. He's telling them, I'm going to die. I'm going to be suffering. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be mocked. But he hasn't really explained to them clearly why he's going to die. Let me show you this. Look back. There's two predictions so far of his death, and we're coming to the third one today. That's why the title of the message is called One More Time, because we see this again. But I want to show you these first couple of predictions here. Look back at Mark chapter 8. If you were with us all the way back, maybe 10 or so weeks ago, you saw this. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he tells them, look, the Old Testament says that I must die, but it doesn't really tell you why. What are the reasons for his death? It's just a reality that's going to happen at this point. It was predicted and promised by the Old Testament, but it doesn't explain why yet, or at least Jesus doesn't. Now look again at chapter 9 and verse 30. 
Here's our second prediction. These are kind of the anchor points in this whole section on discipleship. And you get to the second prediction here, chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there, passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will rise. So there again. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. He's even going to rise from the dead, which the disciples clearly didn't understand. But there's no real explanation as to why this is going to happen. Jesus knows he's going to die, and he has specific reasons for it. But he hasn't divulged those reasons yet to his disciples or to us as we're reading through this. Now, we would say we know because we've read the end of the story. We've read the epistles in the New Testament. But so far in the Gospel of Mark, as it relates to this section on discipleship, Jesus has not clearly explained to them why he's going to die. Now, as we've seen him proclaim his coming death and tell them that he's going to to die, I hope you've noticed that a pattern is developing here. And it's almost a humorous pattern. What happens is he announces to his disciples that he's going to die. He tells them what's coming for him. He's going to be rejected. And immediately following each pronouncement of his death, the disciples do a little bit of glory seeking of their own. It's like these words about his coming death don't register fully with them. And they certainly don't understand why he's going to die. And so then they tend to turn around and immediately following these pronouncements, they pursue their own glory, pursue their own glory and their own greatness. They're certainly failing to grasp why he's going to die and the fact even that he's going to suffer and die. And so then after they pursue their own glory and they talk about how great they are, after those things happen, Jesus follows up their failure to understand with some very clear and sharp instruction to them each time. And he teaches them about the implications of his death for their lives and their path of discipleship. And that's one of the things that we have to pick up very clearly as we're reading this section on discipleship. What happens to Jesus is not in isolation from our lives as disciples. There are massive implications for the way you and I live as disciples that come from the fact that Jesus will suffer and die. It changes the way we live. And so this morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And here we have our third prediction of his suffering and death. And this pattern that we've seen, prediction of suffering, glory seeking from the disciples, And then a follow-up of teaching from Jesus regarding the implications of that for their lives. That pattern is going to hold firm, but there's something that's going to be a little bit different in that pattern this morning. This morning, this entire section on discipleship is going to come to a climax in chapter 10 and verse 45. And Jesus is going to tell them why he must suffer and die. Here are the theological reasons that he's predicting his death, that he knows he's going to die, and that he came to earth in the first place. He knows, the disciples at this point should know, that it's historical fact that he's going to die. But you and I, even as disciples, we need to wrestle with and we have to understand why Jesus came to die. So this morning, as we study this, we're going to see two reasons, very simple outline, two reasons that Jesus came to die. And this is going to get to the heart of the gospel. Two reasons that Jesus came to die. Now, 
Those reasons are found all the way at the end of this section in verse 45. We're going to start in verse 32. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to hold off on giving you those two reasons. And we're going to walk you through this passage, this story. I think it's a pretty compelling narrative here. And we're going to get you through the context to understand the context in which Jesus makes those pronouncements of why he came to die. So we'll get there in verse 45, but let's start in verse 32. Look there with me. Chapter 10 of Mark, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Once again, you find the same thing. Jesus is on this path, on this road, going from north of Israel all the way through Galilee on the east side of the Jordan River, and they're heading toward Jerusalem. And now we actually get the name of their final destination. If you look back and read this, you know that he's not said Jerusalem yet, but now he gives them the name of their final destination, where they're going, and they're getting pretty close to Jerusalem, as you'll see next week as we get into uh, the end of chapter 10. But they're getting pretty close to Jerusalem. Now, what's amazing here is the description that Mark gives of this entourage that's heading toward Jerusalem. Look at verse 32. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Now he paints this very vivid picture of this entourage that's heading toward Jerusalem here. Jesus is walking out ahead of them. He hasn't described the journey as having Jesus walking out ahead of them yet. But it's interesting that as they're drawing closer to the place where Jesus says he will go and die, where he knows he will go and suffer and die, Jesus is so committed to and intent on his mission that he actually walks out in front of his disciples. And the disciples see this commitment in his face and in his stride, and their response is twofold. There's two emotions that are given here. They are amazed at this, and they are, those that are with them are afraid. I think they're amazed because he's out in front, he's headed to Jerusalem, he's leading the way, and they're scared because they know that Jerusalem is probably the worst place for Jesus to go. That's where the religious leaders are, that's where they have the most power, and that's where Jesus and the disciples are in the most danger. And so they're kind of timidly following after him, I think, and he is resolute in his commitment to go, and he knows why he's going there. And that's what we'll learn later on. Now, as they're heading, as Jesus is walking out in front of them, he takes another opportunity to teach them. And this is our third prediction here. Look at verse 32 and then to verse 33. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now this is similar to the other two predictions, but this is the most detailed. Here you get the most information about what's going to happen. There's a lot we could say about this prediction. There's a whole... There's a whole bunch of words and ideas in this, but I want to just highlight one thing that I think will be helpful to you. In verse 34, you can see Jesus says that they're going to mock him and spit on him and flog him. And what he's doing there is he's picking up language from Isaiah chapter 50. And he's taking that language and he's applying it to himself and to what's going to happen to him. Now, 
What's in Isaiah chapter 50? It's a good question to ask. Isaiah chapter 50 is one of what we call the servant songs. Okay, And there's several of those in Isaiah chapter 40 through 55. There's four servant songs, and Isaiah 50 is one of those. And the reason they're called servant songs is because they predict a time when God will raise up a servant who will represent the people of Israel, and he will deliver them. And that's coming in the future. And these songs predict that. And what's interesting in Isaiah chapter 50 is... As you're going through that chapter, you start to realize that the servant is going to suffer and he's going to be rejected and he's going to be condemned. And all of this is a part of God's mission for this servant. You can see Isaiah chapter 50 and verse six. I gave my back to those who strike. This is the servant talking and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And so you read this in Isaiah 50, and it doesn't tell you why these things are going to happen to him, but you only uncover that they are going to happen to this servant. And so you don't see why in Isaiah 50, and Jesus doesn't tell us why here. He just tells us that they're going to happen to him. Now, later on, we'll talk about why they happen to the servant and why they happen to Jesus, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Now, we've seen these words, similar words to verses 33 and 34, this prediction. We've seen this before as we've been going through this section in the Gospel of Mark, okay? We've seen this before, and we know, we should know at this point what to expect after Jesus makes a prediction like this. We've seen the disciples argue about who's the greatest on the pathway as they're walking along. And here we have something very similar, a little glory-seeking from two of the disciples. Look at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, <laughs> great question. We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How many times have your kids asked you that? Now, it's interesting here. They don't just ask him straight up. They don't just come to him and sort of spit out their request. And I, I think they don't do that because they know there's a little hesitancy. They know this is pretty bold, pretty brazen. And there might be a little bit of self-seeking in their request. And so they try to set Jesus up here a little bit, sort of soften the landing of the question that they're going to ask. But Jesus isn't handing out blanket promises to them. He answers them in verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Go ahead, give me the question. And so they do in verse 37. And here we go. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left, and here's the key, in your glory. They know that Jesus has identified himself as the Son of Man, and he'll do that again, and they know that that title means he's unique, and they know that that title comes from Daniel chapter 7, where the one, like a Son of Man, receives the kingdom from God the Father, and they know that, and Jesus has referred to himself as that. They know that he's been proclaiming the kingdom. They've heard that. They know that he has authority. He's able to cast out demons. He's able to heal people. And so they must believe that as they're heading to Jerusalem, that he's going to walk into the capital city, Zion, and he's going to sit on the throne, and he is going to rule and inaugurate the kingdom physically on earth right then. And so they're anticipating this. 
And they're trying to get ahead of the game and get a little bit of that glory where they can get it. And they know that the seat on the right and the left of the king would be places of significant honor and glory and worth. And so they have greatness on the brain. They have honor on the brain. And they are trying to get a piece of that. They want Jesus to give it to them, to promise it to them. Now, it's also important here as you're reading this to keep in mind who asks this. It's James and John. James and John are part of that inner circle of Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And up until this point, we've really seen Peter taking the lead and asking and speaking for the disciples several times. And perhaps James and John noticed that and noticed some of the prestige that Peter was getting as he did these sort of things. He was sort of recognized as the leader. And so here it's interesting that they're essentially trying to cut Peter out of the inner circle. They want to sit on Jesus's right and left hand and they don't mention Peter and he's not in on this little request that they have here. They're they're trying to secure these positions for themselves and not him. Now, it's amazing right? That they ask this. I mean, Jesus has been very clear regarding his suffering and and death awaiting him in Jerusalem. That is what's going to happen to him. But I, I think what's happened here is the disciples have heard him selectively. They've heard the talk about the glory and the kingdom and the son of man. And those are the words and the ideas that have gotten into their brain because they're seeking self glory And they've, for some reason, not soaked in the words about suffering and death, even though they've been abundantly clear. They have heard Jesus selectively. And I just have to pause for a second as we're walking through this and say, how often do we do that? We hear God's words selectively. I do that. I listen selectively. I hear only those parts that I want to hear that are easy to obey or easy to handle or take in. I hear those parts that match my desires and what I want rather than what God wants. And I think that's exactly what happens with James and John here. They've heard selectively. They've got glory on the brain. And so they ask this question thinking about the kingdom coming and Christ's place in it. And they want some of that too. And so Jesus responds in verse 38. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, two images given here, right? The cup and baptism. And in the Old Testament, the cup would have been something you were given a cup by God. Okay, and there's something in it that you were to drink. And typically in the Old Testament, the cup was a cup of judgment and it was a cup of wrath that was given to the nation of Israel, to some individual And so I think what Jesus is talking about here is he's talking about the cup of suffering that he will receive from God the Father. And he's asking them, are you able to partake in that cup of suffering? He also uses the image of baptism here. Now, this is not an Old Testament metaphor, but you know what it means to be baptized. It means to be plunged into the water, to be immersed in something. And so the image here would be to be immersed in the suffering and the rejection and the persecution that comes because of Jesus as the Messiah. That's what he's talking about here. And their response to that question is naive at best. Look at verse 39. 
They said to him, we are able, naive at best. Now, what's interesting here is James and John will endure persecution later in life for their connection to Jesus Christ. Let me show you a couple of interesting passages when you think about their response here. Acts 12, verses 1 and 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And so James will suffer persecution because of his connection to Jesus Christ and the church. And then Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. He sees now how those two go together and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He knows he has received these things because of his connection to Jesus Christ. Now, what's amazing here, going back to Mark chapter 10, is James and John are viewing the cup and the baptism. As they answer this, as they say, yes, we're able, they're viewing these persecutions and suffering and difficulty, they're viewing those as a way of earning honor and glory. They're like, well, if that's what it takes to sit on your right and your left hand, I guess I could endure that. Sign me up for that. And the problem here is it doesn't work that way. We do not endure suffering and persecution as a way to earn favor and earn glory. We endure suffering and persecution because of our connection to Jesus Christ, because that's what happens to disciples. That's what happened to James and John later in life because of their connection to Christ, not as a way to earn honor and to earn position in the kingdom. Look at verse 40, or the end of verse 39 and then into verse 40. The cup that I drink, you will drink. They will suffer. And with the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. The point here is not that there won't be glory and honor. There will be. There will be positions like this. But those positions are not earned by our merit. Those positions are handed out by God's abundant grace. Now we've seen over and over again in an example here. The disciples are failing to understand Christ's suffering, his death, the implications for their lives. We have that example with James and John, but it's not just James and John. Look at verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They are livid at James and John for making this request. And they're not livid because they see, oh, James and John aren't getting it right. They're not thinking correctly about suffering and persecution. And really Christ's kingdom is all about service and they're not seeing it correctly. That's not why James and John, or that's not why the rest of the disciples are upset at James and John. They are indignant and upset here because James and John have beaten them to the punch. They're sitting there going, man, I wish I would have asked that. I wish I would have been the one to pursue. That's a good idea to sit on Christ's right hand and on his left hand. I wish I would have been the one to do that. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 42. This is the same way he has responded every time with patience and grace. 
And I would say that same patience and grace is there for you and I when we fail to grasp these truths over and over again. He very calmly, very patiently explains them to the disciples and teaches them. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him. If you look back at the other two times that Jesus teaches, it's this same language. He calls them to him. He sits them down and he teaches and gives them instruction. Jesus called to them, called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's telling them there is a way of pursuing greatness and honor and glory that is typical of worldly people and worldly rulers. And this would have been very plain to the disciples, right? They knew what Roman officials were like. They knew what Herod was like. They knew what Pilate was like. They had observed this. And this continues to be true in our day. There is a way of pursuing greatness and glory and honor that is worldly. The worldly way is to have people serve you, to step on the neck of others in order to accomplish your goals. The worldly way for greatness is to have an abundance of people working to accomplish your goals, to have people pursuing your agenda. It's all about you. Being able to boss people around for your own personal gain and agenda. But that is not the way it works in God's kingdom. Look at verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Very clearly, it is to be different. And what he does here is he talks about political leaders and their kingdoms, and then he talks about his kingdom, those who follow him and are part of his kingdom. He's painting a picture here of two rival kingdoms, each with an entirely different culture, an entirely different way of living, an entirely different set of laws. The culture of God's kingdom does not promote what you see in the world. It operates differently. One author said it this way, the natural assumptions and valuations by which people operate no longer apply in the kingdom of God. It is a genuinely alternative society. Look at the rest of verses 43 and 44. This is the culture of God's kingdom. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. God's kingdom is about honor and greatness. He talks about that here. Whoever would be great, it is about honor and greatness, but the way in which it is pursued is countercultural to the way we see the world around us pursuing honor and prestige and greatness. I mean, look at the types of people that Jesus says are great in his kingdom. Servants and slaves. And what do you know about a servant and a slave, they exist for other people. They do what other people want them to do. Now, don't read too much into this. The point is not that all Christians should be walked over. And we should let people do that. The point is that those in God's kingdom are always looking outward to other people in love and thinking about how we may do them good and how we may serve them and how we may help them. And how we may promote them. That's the culture of God's kingdom. His disciples live with an eye trained 
to serve and to think about how to serve. And this comes to bear in husband and wife relationships, parent and child relationships, relationships in the church. I need to be on the lookout for how I can help my wife do well, how I can promote her sanctification and holiness. The same for my children. It's not that I do whatever my kids want me to do and whatever they ask me to. I'm thinking about how I can do them good and promote them in holiness and godliness. I don't live for self in God's kingdom. I live for others and for their good. Another author thought this was particularly helpful, said it this way. The preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power. It's not even freedom. It's good for us Americans to think about that. It's service. We think how we can serve others and do good to others. Now, if you've been reading through this section on discipleship, these things are old hat to you, at least hearing them is old hat. Maybe not acting on them for me, but hearing them is old hat. You've heard this before. It's, it's been happening repeatedly in this. But now we come to that question we asked at the beginning. We're going to bring another question in here. Why are things different in God's kingdom? Why are they different? Why does Jesus reject the mentality of the political leaders of his day who lord it over others and who pursue self-centered greatness? Why does he reject that and focus on humble service for his disciples? Why is that the culture of God's kingdom? And the answer to that question is wrapped up in our earlier question. Why did Jesus come to die? Those two answers go hand in hand. And that brings us to verse 45. Two reasons that Jesus came to die. And these reasons are why things are different in God's kingdom. This is the foundation in the background. Notice that verse 45 starts with the word for. So here we're getting an explanation as to why these things are. Why did Jesus die? Why are things different in his kingdom? Here's the explanation. Here are the reasons Jesus came to die. First of all, it'll show up on the screen there. I'll just give it to you. Jesus died to be the model of our discipleship. You can just write that down. Jesus died to be the model of our discipleship. There it is. This is very clear from the first part of verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus died to be the model, the example of our discipleship. And what's amazing here in verse 45 is you can see he uses that phrase, son of man, again, to describe himself. I mean, he's not shying away from who he is. He's not downplaying his role as the king, as the one who is unique, who will receive the kingdom from the ancient of days in Daniel chapter 7. He's not downplaying that at all. He has that authority, but despite his unparalleled position, despite who he is, he did not come to lord it over men. It's not how he functions. Instead, Jesus came for the express purpose of serving us. That's why he came, and that's why he died, and that's why things are different for you and I. And it's that act, that sacrificial service for the good of others, that the Gospels celebrate. 
They hold that up for us. And it's that act that forms the ethical role model for you and I. This drives how we relate to other people and how we live in the world. Jesus did this, therefore you and I do this. We act like this, we think like this, because we're a part of his kingdom and we're following him. Now here's the thing. Human beings need examples. We learn by example. We learn by imitation. We are very good imitators. Now, why is that? Well, it's not random that we learn by example that your kids, when they're little, they mimic you. They say the same things you do, which can be scary sometimes. Why they mimic your actions. It's not accidental. Think about it. We are made in the image of God. We are made to be reflections of God. And then he sent Adam and Eve out into the world and said, reflect me, image me, be like me. And so we are made in our very nature to be imitators, to be copies. That's what we do. We reflect. I mean, how do fashion trends start? Because, and it's not bad that they start because we copy one another. We see something and we think, oh, that looks good. I would like to copy that. How do home decor trends start? Instagram. That's how they start. You see something and you want to copy it. That's because you are made as an image bearer to reflect, to copy things. That's fundamentally how we are. We think of human beings as reasoning beings and we are, but right up there with reason is image bearing. We copy, we imitate. We're going to mimic and imitate something. It's in our nature. And we can either imitate idols, we can either imitate worldly rulers, we can take the same mentality that they do, or we can hold the example of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death up, and we can learn about that, and we can learn to love and appreciate that, and then our hearts will be drawn to that, and we will love what he has done and love him for doing it, and then we will begin to mimic that in our own lives and imitate it. That's how we're made. That's how the gospel writers present the example of Jesus Christ. And that's why he says this in verse 45, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. This is why you and I do this. This is why we think this way. This is why we act this way. But here's the problem. You can't just tell people, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? It's not enough. It's not enough for every human being to just say, what would Jesus do? Because we come bent and broken by sin and we come prepackaged, imitating all the wrong things. And we don't want to imitate Jesus and we don't find him glorious and we don't want anything to do with him. And so we don't copy him. We come self-centered. We come living as if everything's all about me. Our hearts are enslaved to self-centeredness and sin, and we come born that way. And so we cannot on our own follow this example. Jesus isn't a model for us unless something happens. Unless the second part of verse 45 is also true. Look there. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the second reason 
and the more fundamental reason why Jesus came to die. He did come to be our example. But Jesus died to be the means of our discipleship. He died to be the foundation, the starting point of our discipleship. We're to mimic his service, but the only way we can mimic his service is if he becomes a ransom for us. Now, the word ransom there is very key in verse 45. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what's a ransom? A ransom is a price paid on behalf of another person to secure his or her freedom. That's what a ransom is. And that word ransom is really closely related to the idea of redemption. Buying someone out of slavery or out of bondage. That's the idea. That's what happened to Israel in the Old Testament. They were purchased by the blood of those lambs out of bondage and out of slavery. And Jesus is the means here of our discipleship because we are brought back. We are brought out of enslavement to sin. We are purchased out of enslavement to sin, freed and changed by his gift of his life for us. We're no longer enslaved to the devastation of self-centered living. Living for self is a thin and a small way to live. But Jesus saves us from that. He gives his life as a ransom for us and pays the penalty for our self-centeredness so that we can be purchased out of that and so that we can mimic his role model of discipleship. Now, I told you earlier, all the way back in verse 34, I don't even know if you can remember back then as we're going along, but back in verse 34, I told you that Jesus is picking up the language of those servant songs. Remember that back in Isaiah chapter 50, one of the servant songs there. And I also told you in Isaiah 50, we really don't understand why the servant has to suffer. What is the reason for his suffering? Well, as you read further in the book of Isaiah, you come to one of the servant songs that makes it very clear why the servant has to suffer. And it's that servant song, Isaiah 53, that Jesus is alluding to here in verse 45. When he says that he gives his life as a ransom, as a guilt offering for many, he is referring back to Isaiah chapter 53. And it's in that servant song that you get the reason why the servant must suffer, why he must be persecuted and spit on and mocked, and why Jesus, as the fulfillment, as that servant, must go to Jerusalem and must die at the hands of sinful men. Listen to Isaiah 53 and see if you can pick up the language of Mark 10:45 here. Yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You can see up there that his soul makes an offering for guilt. That's that ransom payment that Jesus is talking about in Mark 10 and verse 45. He gives his life as an offering for guilt, as a ransom payment. And he does that by pouring out his soul to death and being numbered with the transgressors. He bears the iniquities of his people, and they are counted righteous. They are freed from their sin, and they are given his righteousness because of his grace. Listen to further back in this servant song, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on this servant, the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the ransom. He's the fulfillment of this servant song. He's the one who offers himself as the payment for our redemption. His blood shed is the price for our freedom. And without that, there is no imitation. There is no what would Jesus do. There's no life of service for the good of others. There's only self-centeredness and enslavement to my passions, my desires, and my sin. But with Jesus as the ransom, you and I have been bought back from that. We've been set on the path of discipleship. And now we are free to live a joy-filled life of service to others. That's why he came to die. For you and for me. 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so followers of Christ have to have both of these reasons here. We imitate the example of Jesus in service and sacrifice to others. We look outward in love to do good to others, but we only can do that because of the grace that has been shown to us by Jesus putting himself up as a guilt offering, as a ransom payment for our sin. And our responsibility, our delight is to see that and respond to that in repentance and faith and say, I see my self-centeredness, I see my sin, and I need his ransom payment because I can't do this on my own. I can't earn it, I can't merit it, It all depends on him and the price that he paid for me. And then we joyfully pursue a life of service to others. That's why he came to die. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for the ransom payment the redemption that we have in you, that for our sake you became poor so that we might be rich. The benefits that we receive are so abundant, so magnificent. 
And I pray that you would help our hearts to recognize those things, even this morning. Help my heart to know what has been done for me and help me to rejoice in those truths. Help the means of my discipleship, the fact that Christ is a ransom, to motivate the model that I want to imitate in my life. Thank you for your work. We thank you for the freedom that has been purchased. And we love you. In Christ's name, amen.